My name is Keith Beavers, and you haven't had a Sloppy Joe until you've had a New Jersey Sloppy Joe, specifically from Town Hall Deli in South Orange. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 29 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. It's season two, and how are you? Okay, guys, this is the listener episode. You guys sent questions in. I'm going to answer the questions to the best of my ability. This is going to be fun. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with La Marca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our full portfolio at BarrelRoom.com. Cheers and all the best. So we've never done this before. Of course, we're only in season two, but we didn't do it in season one. But I thought, you know, even though we talk about wine every week together and we've learned a lot in the past two seasons, I mean, we're just at the end of season two and we definitely have more to learn, obvi, but I thought... Right now, are there some burning questions you have for me here at Wine 101? So I put it out there, got a bunch of questions. I'm going to go ahead and just get as many as I can in this short little time we have together in this episode of Wine 101. And this is just me riffing. Let's riff. I don't particularly like the jammy profile of many California cabs. Which regions should I be avoiding, or is it more complicated than that? So the jamminess of wine, especially with cabs, because Cabernet Sauvignon really wants to be kind of big, bold, structured, and peppery. It also really wants a little bit of Merlot to blend with it so it can soften a little bit because it's a bit of an austere, austere kind of wine. So one way to do it would be if you don't like the jamminess of a California cab, maybe make sure to try to find California Cabernet Sauvignons that are absolutely not blended with anything else and actually have 100% cab in them. That might give you what you're looking for because cab does have an austerity to it. And when it's made well and 100% cab from Napa, it's incredible, structured, and not jammy. But if you're just generally not down with the California sun and the jamminess of the varieties and the maybe a little bit of Merlot or Syrah that's blended into them, try to find Cabernet Sauvignons from cooler wine regions. Uh, Washington State has some really nice, more lean, peppery style, yet structured Cabernet Sauvignons. You can also go to Bordeaux, but Bordeaux is going to be blended with Merlot or Cab Franc. Now, these are general statements. If you do have a wine merchant that you trust... Try to ask them about that, saying, look, I don't like the jammy cabs, help me out. Um, But if you're on your own and you don't have a wine shop that you know and trust, this stuff might help. What are some resources I can use to get the latest news about wine? I mean, I'm just going to say it. (laughs) Vine Pair, right? So Vine Pair is probably, no, 
It is the number one source for wine news and education on the internet. I just got to say it. We are built for you, the consumer. We don't do pay for play. We have our own point system. I review all the wines. Wine 101, this podcast is an extension of VinePair. And what it is is the education, you know, part of VinePair. We have amazing freelance writers that are reporting in from all over the world, constantly updating the industry. We have in-house writers doing great jobs, running, writing great stuff about what's going on in the wine world. We're, we're not a ticker tape type thing, but we have all the info. Where can I get my hands on an aged wine to try to know I like aged wine before I invest into a whole wine aging setup? The, it's a little bit complicated because it can be pretty personal. Because depend like what wines are you at, are you excited about that you would like to age? Because we if you've listened to Wine One and One, you know that not all the wines in the world age. The, the majority of the wines out there are for like you know now. So there are places in the world that we've talked about in Wine One and One that have age worthy wines: Barolo, Barbaresco, <clears throat> um, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Napa, places like that. So where where would you like to taste aged wine? And then once you decide that, then you buy, and you maybe you might need some, you're gonna need some help with a wine merchant, but you know, you buy a certain wine from a place you'd like to taste, a new vintage, and then you invest in a older bottle of wine. It might be more expensive, but you'll get a sense of how the wine ages. You'll have a younger version and you'll have an older version of it. It can be expensive. Um, the one place in the world that you can do this and not break the bank is Rioja. Rioja, for some reason, has older vintages often on the American market that are not that expensive. So it might be the first place to try. Do wines taste better when you have them in their country of origin? Or is an imported bottle just as good? I would say the latter. If a wine comes from somewhere else to the United States, um, it shouldn't be any different because... The winemaker made the wine in a certain way, and that's going to be the way you taste it in, in the United States. Now, bottles that do come from somewhere else to the United States have a bumpy journey, and sometimes they need to rest before they are released into the, uh, into the distribution because of just, you know, it gets jostled a little bit and has to settle. But there's also the, the, there's also improper storage. I mean, if it's stored in a bad place and then it comes to you, and it's oxidized, that's not the winemaker's fault, it's the distribution's fault. But there should not be a difference between the wine you taste in, like let's say Barolo that you love so much, and you buy it at a local wine shop. It should basically, without vintage variation and minimal bottle variation, should pretty much taste the same. Is Franzia wine? (laughs) I love this question. Yes, Franzia is wine. Franzia is a company that buys bulk surplus wine or grapes and mass produces them into a wine. And the only reason why it people don't think it's a wine is because of the stigma of, you know, mass production wine. It doesn't matter because if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. The one thing about Franzia and the reason why people kind of mess with it a little bit and wines of that ilk is that when you're making a wine from a grape, if the, 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 the higher the production rate, the less complexity you get from the wine. 
because you're dealing with just so many hectoliters per liter, you're not getting any complexities. So that's what it is. When you're buying a wine that's mass produced, it's not about complexity. It's about just everyday enjoyment. So Franzia is wine. What is your go-to wine for a weeknight, anniversary, or double date? For a weeknight, for me personally, I just want a young wine, a young white, a young red, something that's made to drink now that hasn't been aging. And if it's in the summer, I'm going to chill it down. I want it to be high acid red. And if it's the winter, I want it to be a little bit, you know, just a little more depth to it. It also depends on what I'm making, right? What you're cooking. For an anniversary, I'm going to level up like Ciara. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to open a wine that needs time to develop as we have our anniversary dinner, you know, like when if you're hanging out with your significant other with a nice aged bottle of wine, it's the oxygen is just like layering and layering that wine. And then the wine is leveling up while you're talking and it just kind of jives with the whole idea of an anniversary. You know, we've been together for this many years. Here's this, here's this nice vintage wine and it's opening up as we talk. It's romantic, right? And again, for me personally, for a double date, I would definitely make sure the wine was number one, young, number two, low in alcohol, because <laughs> you just want to have fun and you don't want to like get, whoa, is this a 16% or 15% alcohol? I would want to do like maybe a Grunewald Liner screw cap, nice and fun, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, chilled Gamay, a fun Pinot Noir, just something with a low alcohol that's good for like social vibes, you know what I mean? Is it worth it for me, a wine novice, to own a copy of Jedi Winemaster Jancis Robinson's Wine Grapes, or is there another book or site you'd read, you would recommend first? Okay, so wine literature, it's everywhere. There's so many books out there. But Wine Grapes, the book that Jancis and Hugh did, um, and The Oxford Wine Companion, I mean, those are very expensive books and they are deep and wide. You can go down rabbit holes and you know that I love doing that because I'm here to teach you guys about wine and those are my primary sources of information and I just can branch out from there. If, you're, if, if that's what you want to do and you want to get deep and start like there, you should definitely go for it. But they are going to be, you know, monetary investments. They're, they're expensive books. You can also, I mean, Wine 101, you know, hopefully I'm helping here because this is a nice sort of 20 minutes at a time, you know, giving you like little nuggets of information you can use. Vine Pair, of course, I would, again, I have to recommend we are a great source for wine education and wine information. There are also some books out there that kind of get you started. The Wine Bible is a very good, absolute beginning point. It was written by Karen McNeil and she updates it all the time. It's just your, it's like the first reference guide that I ever had in wine. And I always recommend that to start. How do I find people who care as much as I do about wine? And how do I avoid the snobs? (laughs) I love this question because I felt this in the beginning when I started in wine. And as a Star Wars fan, I often do because it's hard to find people that can really geek out with Star Wars. But anyway, I digress. I thought about this a lot. I had a local wine shop, and I think this might be the solution or one of them. I, but I, I don't know. This one feels right. If you have a local wine shop that you trust, something a place you've been going, and the people that work there help you out, and they have weekly wine tastings, go to those weekly wine tastings. 
talk to the people at the shop and talk to the people that are tasting along with you because those people are in your community. And if those people are going to a wine shop for a tasting just like you are, they might have the same interests that you do. And you can maybe network through there and start a tasting group. Or you can even suggest to the wine shop to do one or see if the wine shop does a tasting group as well. Therefore, there, that way you're, you can inject yourself into the people in your community that are really passionate about wine. And to avoid snobs is very easy. If you're talking to somebody and you feel they're kind of snobbing out, don't listen to them. How can I level up my nose? I can smell basic things, but it's hard to place a name to many things. Okay, this goes back to season one, but I'm, I'm happy to kind of revisit this. Your brain, your nose, and a glass of wine is a personal experience, right? The whole idea of wine is it's this beautiful natural phenomenon that gives off all these wacky aromas. And some of the aromas are classic and are tied to certain varieties like Pinot Noir, cherries and mushrooms and stuff like that. Merlot, sometimes blueberries. But beyond that, it can get kind of subtle, especially as a wine ages and goes into the tertiary aromas, which we talked about in season one. A lot of people in our industry will tell consumers to go to the produce section of a supermarket or a farmer's market and buy a bunch of fruits and vegetables, cut them up, stick them in your nose, (laughs) smell them, and then you will have a sense of different kinds of vegetables and fruits and stuff that you get in wine. I've never done that. And when I was coming up in wine, my way of doing it, and this is just my way, so it doesn't, you know, you can do that, and it works. You Once you smell something, it's in your mind, and if you smell it enough, like this white wine has a scent, has a hint of corn. Okay, sweet corn, it's there because you smelled it, and it's real. But what I did is I never, I never, I was, stre- it stressed me out doing all that. It was a lot of work, and I just wanted to enjoy wine. So what I do, and what I've done throughout my entire career is just, sip and enjoy and smell. If I try to draw something from the wine, it's right or it's wrong, but it's something that I smell. And I also enjoy the power of suggestion. If someone says a wine smells like something and I didn't know that until they said it, I was like, oh, cool. It does smell that way. It's never a competition. Wine should be enjoyed. Leveling up your nose, you can do some work and go to you know the produce market and do that way, or you just can continue to enjoy wine And then if you experience different aromas in your life and you experience them in wine, awesome. But really what it comes down to is enjoy the wine. Why is extra dry sparkling wine sweet and dry still wine is not? So I go into this in the sparkling wine episode, but the term extra dry is part of a dosage regime that is pretty much globally agreed upon. Um, And... To say extra dry in a sparkling wine means there's an addition of 12 to 17 grams of sugar per liter added to the wine. And even though it's going to be a little bit sweeter because of the addition of this sort of sugar syrup, it's still going to be drier than the even more sweeter levels beyond it. It's confusing. I go over it in the sparkling wine episode. When a still wine is considered dry, what people are saying, and it's really just a perception of this, you know, everyone, not everyone is, everyone's different, but like usually what it means is that there are drying effects on the palate from the wine. 
So sometimes if the wine has a higher acid and not enough fruit, it's going to be drying. If a wine has a lot of tannin, it's going to be drying. And what's happening is your palate is perceiving more drying perceptions than anything else. Therefore, you perceive that wine to be dry. So that's how that works. And then I got a really interesting question about elevation and its effect on wine. It's a very awesome question and it's a complicated answer. And I hope to have a episode that involves that at some point. Um, Because it's complicated, but there's some generalities you can pull from elevation. The higher the elevation, the poorer the soil. You know, there's like hills and mountains with runoff. You're not going to have a lot of vegetation up there. It's a, it's, it's, you're already going to have harsh soils. And because of the elevation, it's going to be a little bit cooler. So you're going to have the vine's going to do what it wants to do. It's going to be in the harsh soils, which it wants. It's, gonna, it's going to be a cooler situation. So you're going to get more acidity, hopefully, in your variety during the growing season. And also, you are up in a higher elevation. So you have a ton of sun exposure, more so than you would down in the valley in the sun exposure at a higher elevation is a more um, moderating sun exposure than in the valley where there's the more fertile soil and more competition for the vine. So that's a quick riff, but at some point we're going to dig deep into the soil on that one. One question I got more than anything, multiple times actually, is what is natural wine? Okay, there is no official definition for natural wine. Everybody has their own thing about natural wine and how what they think is natural wine. But because the trend is so intense and because it's gained such um, exposure and popularity, there's a kind of style emerging from this trend. But there is no such thing as a natural wine. It just doesn't make any sense because there's wine is natural. Fermentation is nature. It's all natural. But back in the late 90s, there's an article um, written recently, actually, by Jamie Good uh, for Vine Pair. Um, he's from the UK, and he wrote an article called Are We Entering a Post-Natural Wine Era? And he talks about witnessing the kind of emergence of this trend in France, where these these wine bars were being supplied by these winemakers that were making wine in a style that was sort of, I don't want to say, maybe it was pre-technology, pre-modern technology, pre-modern wine techniques, in that they were kind of throwing it all to chance. They thought, let's see if we can make a wine with his, with the least intervention we can. So in the vineyard, you let you know, vines grow with weeds. And then in the, in, the, in the winery, you allow whatever yeast is in the air to eventually make its way into the vat and start the fermentation process, whether it takes a day, a week, or two weeks, or a month, that's that. And in addition to that, no matter how long it takes for that to start, we will not shock anything with SO2. That's just not going to happen. So if there's Britannomyces in the vat, then so be it. It'll be there when we put it into the barrel. And if there's Britannomyces in the barrel, so be it. It'll be there when we do it. This wine is being made with the most low, the lowest intervention possible. And this is considered as natural a wine as it can be. The result is a wine that is infected with things like Britannomyces and volatile acidity 
and other bacteria. And what that does is, like I said in the wine faults episode, we know what Britannomyces does after the, the beneficial yeast dies. It keeps on eating the sugar and reduces the fruit level of the wine even more and adds these compounds that give smoke and mouse pelt and all these other aromas to a wine. So whether the wine is made from a Pinot Noir or a Merlot or a Cab Franc, these compounds are going to exist. So a Pinot Noir made like this is going to have smoke and mouse pelt. A Merlot made like this is going to have smoke and mouse pelt and stuff like that because we're not protecting the wine. We're letting the wine battle on its own. And in that way, people consider that natural. We have certifications like the organic certification or the Demeter certification for biodynamic practices, which is a whole episode we could get into. And those are there to help winemakers make wine in a more natural way while still maintaining the varietal character of the wine. So if you see organic or biodynamic, it's called a Demeter certification for biodynamic, and the wine tastes like a regular wine, you know that the wine was made sustainably, but the winemaker tried to maintain the in the in the uh, inherent characteristics of the varieties in which they're making the wine from. The quote-unquote natural wine community, they go beyond all that. They are just like, look, we're going to just let this wine ex- exist and, and, and make itself. And whatever happens, happens. And then we're going to bottle it and we're going to give it to you. And we're going to tell you that is as natural a wine as ever been made. Now, the thing is, Franzia is wine. Quote, unquote, natural wine is also wine. When grapes are crushed and fermented, they become wine. It's up to us humans or winemakers, again, I don't make wine, the, to decide what they want to do. Do they want to protect the winemaking process or do they want the winemaking process to survive on its own and see what comes of it? That latter one is what is becoming known as natural wine. And this trend has evolved in different ways and morphed and mutated. So there is a, it's always going to change. So every time you ask somebody about natural wine, they're going to tell you something different. But this is kind of what I see as the emerging trend. Woo, that was a lot of riffing. I hope, uh, hope that was enjoyable. I had fun doing it. I hope you guys had fun too. And guys, next week is the season finale of season two. Wow. See you guys next week. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by E&J Gallo Winery. 
At Gallo, we exist to serve enjoyment in moments that matter. The hallmark of our company has always been an unwavering commitment to making quality wine and spirits. Whether it's getting barefoot and having a great time, making everyday sparkle with LaMarca Prosecco, or continuing our legacy with Louis Martini and Napa, we want to welcome new friends to wine and share in all of life's moments. Interested in trying some of the wine brands discussed on Wine 101? Follow the link in each episode description to purchase featured wines or browse our food portfolio at barrelroom.com. Cheers and all the best.